And welcome, friends, to the Generations Radio Broadcast. Kevin Swanson, your host with you. Adam McManus, our host on theworldview.com, with me on this edition. And today we're coming back to economy. And I want to come back to how the world runs and your part in it. Our children need to understand the basics in economics, macroeconomics today. And we've mentioned $100 trillion in debt, unfunded liabilities. What are we, $32 trillion on the national debt? But don't forget the rise in corporate debt, the rise in individual family, household debt. Don't forget the rise in Social Security debt. And the Social Security program went into the red for the first time in 2011, came back into the red several more times. And we're looking at the bust of Social Security. But don't worry about that. The federal government will bail out Social Security. Oh, wait a minute. The federal government's been borrowing from the Social Security fund, so that won't work very well. Okay, so how are we going to function in 2034? Well, as we said before, 80 million baby boomers retiring, which means the worker to retiree ratio will be one third of what it was 30 years ago, 10 years from now. And that's the sort of scenario that we're dealing with. Uh, we are looking at socialism running out of other people's money. But uh, but it turns out the economy is not doing well in that there are less and less of the millennial generation working. So that's the other problem. So, you know, we were hoping the millennial generation would salvage us, but there are at least 10 million members of the millennial generation didn't show up for work. So that's another issue. This from the Mises Institute, the jobs boom isn't so hot when we remember nearly 6 million men are missing from the workplace turned out that the number of employed people has gone down in recent months. Only 158.4 million total employment is still nearly 400,000 workers below where it was before COVID. So we have 400,000 less workers than we did in 2019. But there are 10 million more people in America now than there were in 2019. So, you know, 400,000 less workers, 10 million more people in America since 2019. There are less people to do the work. Prime age male workforce participation rose year over year in November just slightly, but it's 88.4% off from 98% back in the 1960s. It was 94% in 1980. It's just steadily gone down. Prime age male workers, and I believe that's roughly 25 to 54 years of age, Something like 10 million of them no longer in the workforce. So that's a huge gap. Every time there is a White House briefing and there's any economic news, it's typically bad news, typically about the rising costs of goods and services and gasoline. The White House press secretary keeps flipping to her prepared statement that under President Joe Biden, we've seen the greatest increase in new jobs than any president in American history. Well, that's because 60 to 70% of the people who lost their jobs during COVID now came back to the workplace. He didn't create new jobs. These are the people returning to their old jobs. So it's just a big shell game, isn't it? Yeah, it is. 400,000 less workers. Uh, you know, we're not looking at, and remember, 10 million more Americans. Now that's, you know, that's more immigrants, more, you know, young people turning into 25 to 28 year olds over the last three years. But you're looking at an increase in 10 million people, yet the workforce is 400,000 less than it was 
before COVID. So, I mean, that's the sort of thing that's happening. And here's another piece of this. So you have less people doing the work while at the same time, U.S. labor productivity is also low. That is, those doing the work are doing less work. And this came for the Worldview in five minutes. Remember, we handled this last Tuesday. Uh, U.S. labor productivity declined for the third quarter in a row, making for the worst decline since 1947. It's a serious downturn, the economy. Four of the last five quarters have gone negative on labor productivity. After some 28 quarters in the positive, last four of the last five have gone negative. Fox Business commented that workers are burned out. Gen X, Gen Z workers lack some of the institutional knowledge. They're also less willing to put in long hours. Their boomer managers might expect. So... I'm I'm telling you, these are the metrics of a dying economy, friends. Less productivity, less people in the workplace, worker-to-retiree ratio, one-third of what it was 30, 40 years ago, and now you're expecting Social Security to be there for you in 2034. Don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> don't think so. This is This is terribly depressing, Kevin. Well, I mean, well, what is it that contributes a strong economy? Let's let's answer that question before we take the break. Three big things. Yeah. Three contributors. Yeah. So let me hit the first one. Number one factor is God's blessing and obedience to God. So, and that, by the way, is not found in your average economics textbook. That is in our textbook for high schoolers and for entire families, how the world runs and your part in it. So I've got an entire chapter on what is it that uh, contributes a strong economy. Uh, it's up front. I think it's chapter three, it. chapter four. But, uh, yeah, number one factor is God's blessing and obedience to God. That's it, man. You cite Deuteronomy eight eighteen, which says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Wow, that'll preach. Yeah, that, John Maynard Keynes missed that part. <laughs> you, know, you know, your, your average <laughs> junior college economics course, oops, forgot Deuteronomy eight eighteen. Oops, there's an oops. <laughs> but yeah, only God can provide the power and ability for any nation to make wealth. Ultimately, the motivation to work in the minds of 338 million people is determined by God. Only our all-powerful creator can provide the insight for making technological inventions and scientific breakthroughs. And we've seen some economic blessings come across our nation largely, and I'd say exclusively, through scientists and inventors of Christian faith over the last 600 years in Europe and America. I tell that story in Epoch, the Rise and Fall of the West. But these inventions have brought unprecedented economic blessings upon the whole world just since 1800. So, you know, Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 8, it's... It's all there. It shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, the statutes which I command you today, that these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed you shall be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall you be in the basket, your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land and the increase of your cattle and so forth. So in other words, you don't obey God and nations that don't obey God, nations that sink into the oblivion of violating the marriage covenant, destroying sexuality, undermining the character of the youth in the public schools. Guess what's happened to their economies? Guess what happens when you break down the character of a nation in the public schools? As defined by God, you're going to have a bad economy. I'm reminded of Andy Stanley, the pastor in Georgia, the son of Charles Stanley, who pretty much deep sixes the entire Old Testament, calls it irrelevant. And yet, as Charlie Kirk mentioned in a recent family talk with Dr. James Dobson program, Jesus quotes more from Deuteronomy than any other Old Testament book. So 
if we are of the opinion as Christians that Jesus is pretty important in our salvation and pretty important in terms of everything he does, then how can we deep six the Old Testament if Jesus himself is quoting from Deuteronomy and all these lessons that you're citing about God's blessing and how he gives you the power to get wealth and what our economy can learn from the book of Deuteronomy, it's all right there. Andy Stanley is confused terribly, isn't he? Well, we want to go over the principles that produce a strong economy in a nation. And these are the sorts of things that I've summarized and how the world runs and your part in it. Uh, The second obvious reason for good economies is hard work. And that's basically Proverbs 10, verse 4, and the other, you know, 30% of the book of Proverbs. He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So there it is. Part of the Ten Commandments also six days, you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. So what you see is your son, your daughter, your male servant, manservant, uh, female servant, etc. Everybody's out there working for six days, but not the seventh. So there it is. Work ethic is essential in a biblical economy. And and so, you know, we teach our children how to work and why work is important from a human perspective. An economy is really the grand total or the aggregate of all the work that's getting done in a community or nation. That's it. People don't work. Guess what? Not, not much to buy, not much to sell, you know, and everything that you do buy is going to be expensive. So, so it should be pretty obvious if nobody's doing the work, nobody's producing goods and services. Um, we're not going to have a very strong economy. And, uh, you know, I like to use this as an example. Uh, for a couple of years, I've been uh, blaming my tiredness, Adam, on low iron in my blood, lack of vitamins, autoimmune disease, got Hashimoto's, you know, that's part of my problem. But now, Adam, I think I found the real reason. I'm actually overworked. There's a shocker. Yes. <laughs> so I did a little research. A little research. Population of the country, 237 million, of which 104 million are retired. That leaves 133 million to do all the work. There are 85 million in school, which leaves 48 million to do the work. Out of these, there's 29 million employed by the federal government. That leaves 19 million to do the work. Four million are in the armed forces, which leaves 15 million to do the work. Take from this the total of 14,800,000 people who work for state and city governments. That leaves 200,000 to do the work. There are 880,000 in hospitals, so that leaves uh, 12,000 to do the work, Adam. Now there are 11,998 people in prison. That leaves just uh, two people to do the work, you and me, Adam, and I'm tired of doing it all myself, okay? <laughs> I love it. And you're tired of doing all the work yourself. Well, a lot of those numbers, in case people, they were f- flying by, were a little bit made up. But the point is that a lot of people just aren't working. Yeah. And that's, I, you know, granted, there's 10 million young people not doing much work. And there's a lack of productivity as well. And, I, you know, these are the sorts of things that could contribute to a strong economy. Um, then there's a third aspect as well. And, and I, before we get to that, though, I think, you know, work that is brain work as well, smart work, quality work, all of that's important. The type of work we do is important as well. There are creative technological solutions that sped up the process of big projects. And for example, the nail gun. 
I use this as an example and how the world runs and your part in it. The nail gun can pound three big nails in one second. That's amazing. It's 100 times faster than using a hammer. To build an average house, a carpenter uses about 24,000 nails. So using manual hammers, that carpenter would be at it for 200 hours. The nail gun would cut the total nailing time for a full home construction down to about two hours. That's just the nailing portion of it. But man, you see a you know savings of 198 hours. That contributes massively to a division of labor. And once you get division of labor, that's the third aspect of improving a national economy. Once you get an effective division of labor, uh, then you know things just start to take off. When everybody worked as a farmer, there wasn't anybody making big plows and equipment to farm large pieces of land. There were just a few carpenters to build houses. Wasn't anybody who could take the time to invent automobiles, dishwashers, refrigerators to make life easier for everybody else. There was no division of labor, so everybody just planted a few seeds on a small piece of land. Everybody just barely survived. But then you improve the plow, and that happened in the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th centuries. The knitting machine or the weaving machine was was first invented by a pastor uh, in England. Amazing story, by the way. He was trying to court a young lady who sat there and knitted the whole time. He got so mad, he invented the knitting machine. Phenomenal story. You can get it in Epoch. Then there's Cyrus McCormick's Reaper, which made the reaping of uh, grain much faster for the first time in 5,900 years. Phenomenal. The nail gun, other power equipment has made the construction of homes go faster, and on and on it goes. So these are the sorts of things that have allowed for mass production, the division of labor and manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in summary, poor countries are poor. Why? Because people don't work hard for six days a week. Or people are dishonest, they cheat each other in business, or civil governments introduce a lot of taxes, regulation, and bribes into the system, slowing everything down and discouraging hard work. People waste a lot of time. They don't work efficiently using innovative methods to do their work. There isn't enough division of labor in the economy, or the nation is just plain immoral and God's not blessing it. Okay, so those are the reasons for impoverished economies around the world. And before I take the break, teach your children to work, friends. Teach your children to work. And this comes in my book, uh, How the World Runs, and your part in it. They, they, sh- they should be taught to work as unto the Lord with all their heart, not to procrastinate, embrace the hard jobs, overcome obstacles, take upon themselves the attitude of overcoming obstacles to achieve progress, and teach them to work in faith, overcome the obstacles in faith by prayer and persistence and prayer and work, both. Teach them to rest one day a week and teach them to apply self-discipline and regularity, consistency to things that matter most. I'm talking about spiritual habits, prayer, attending church. And, and then finally, teach them to make good use of the talents that God has given them. It's not about ambition in the sense of desiring to be rich. It's not about worldly ambition. It's about being faithful with the resources God has given you. It's about taking advantage of the opportunities God has placed in front of you. It's about being faithful to God. It's about being faithful with the time and talents you already have. It's about keeping an eye out for the opportunity and talent that you haven't used yet and then get out there and use it for God's glory. And then finally, teach your children to keep the kingdom of God and his righteousness right at the center of their value system. Teach your children to lay up for themselves treasures in heaven if they can trade earthly money and time for eternal benefit for the church, for missions, etc. It's a good trade. And then finally, give them the book of Proverbs. Teach them the principles of the book of Proverbs, much of which I summarized in the book, How the World Runs, and your part in it. And we want to talk more about these issues next on the Generations broadcast. Stay with us.
You know, busyness has a way of creeping into our lives. As dads, it can leave us longing for moments of one-on-one time with our sons to simply talk. And those moments can be tough to come by. I get it. That's one of our top goals for our annual summer father-son retreat in the Colorado mountains. To provide quality time for you to connect with your son, can you think of anything more important for your schedule next year? If you are looking for an opportunity to bond, to really bond with your son, then join me, Kevin Swanson, and hundreds of other fathers and sons from across the country next August. But be sure to register soon because we max out the camp every year and we're already filling up. Go to coloradofatherson.com today and choose one of the two weekends available before they are full. Lord willing, I will be there and it will be a great opportunity to meet you and your son. This is your chance to secure the lowest price for this event. So go to coloradofatherson.com and register today. And we are back on the Generations Broadcast talking about economies, macroeconomies, and what's happening to a debt-ridden macroeconomy that's lacking in character. The breakdown of character, the breakdown of family life, the breakdown of motherhood, the breakdown of fatherhood inevitably yields a breakdown of economy. And this is the biggest economic lesson, no-brainer of all. People are extremely short-sighted in their view of the life of personal peace and affluence. Uh, Birth control, abortion, debt have enabled short-term wealth, a breakdown of character, and a breakdown of economy. Inevitably, you're going to see a breakdown of economy because of these things. There's this impression that you can be rich and consume your wealth on yourself, just live the single life, have sex in the city, skip the kids, and eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Well, that's the worldview that runs our major nations today. Somebody asked John Maynard Keynes once, how does this debt-based economy work out in the long run? And his response was, in the long run, we're all dead. Well, that's because he was a homosexual and he didn't have any children. But uh, what about the rest of us? What about our children, our grandchildren? What about them? Well, we're not concerned about them. And that's the way these debt-based, birth-imploding economies go. And I could think of no better example of this than the recent study coming out of Colorado. KDVR reported that Colorado women are becoming less and less interested in having children. Women in America and much of the developed world have been experiencing a drop in fertility rates in the 21st century. The trend, though, in Colorado has been especially pronounced. It has one of the nation's lowest fertility rates and saw one of the sharpest declines in birth rates over the last 15 years. While the birth rate measures the number of children born for every 1,000 people, the fertility rate measures how many children are likely to be born per woman in childbearing years. In America, we're not replacing ourselves. You need 2.1 children in order to replace mom and dad. In Colorado, the fertility rate is 1.48. It's the sixth lowest in America. Only Maine, interestingly, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Oregon, Rhode Island, and Vermont have lower fertility rates. Interestingly, the highest educated states are Massachusetts, New Jersey, Connecticut, Vermont, and Colorado. And I think there's a direct connection here. If you look at the dots and connect them, it's the fact that these young people between the ages of 22 and 40 have been indoctrinated through junior high, high school, college, to believe that there is this gigantic so-called climate crisis and the most noble, upstanding thing you could do as a citizen 
is literally not have children. The blue states, the highly educated states, have the lowest birth rates. Why? Because they get the worldview. You know, they're getting it. They're getting educated in the worldview. There's an irony here, too, that the highest educated states have the highest number of school closings. <laughs> you know, okay, what's going on there? <laughs> that is ironic. The, the more you educate, the less you need schools. <laughs> <laughs> the fact is that these 25 to 40-year-old young people who could be having children have totally rejected the counsel of Scripture from Psalm 127.3. Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from Him. They perceive children to actually be a curse, and they want to continue in their selfish ways and spend all of their income on themselves and their lattes and on their vacations and their fancy luggage. Yeah, and the most important ethic in the modern world, especially in the educated states, where you're up to speed with the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, you've been duly educated in 16 years or 18 years of the worldview that dominates in the public schools and universities today, the lesson that you get is do not contribute to the increase in human population on planet Earth. I can't think of a higher ethic for the secularist than that. And you just mentioned that. But uh, Colorado's fertility rate, yeah, plummeted 23% from 2010 to 2020. Guess what happened between 2010 and 2020? We had a Republican governor in 2010-ish. And where are we in 2022? We're about as blue as you can get. Every arm of our government has turned towards the democratic party and we have become the blue of the blue states and that has happened in the last 10 years and of course colorado's fertility rate plummeted by 23 percent at the same time biggest drops have occurred in arizona and colorado guess what happened in arizona over the last 10 to 15 years turned from red to blue well one last story before we're done uh south korea is the poster child for you know the population implosion for the population decrease of the developed world no other nation has so represented the materialistic uh evolutionistic worldview uh the population imploding worldview of the leftists as south korea has here's the story that came out just uh, what december 4th CNN actually brought this out. South Korea recently broke its own record for the world's lowest fertility rate. Now, get this, 0.79. Average South Korean woman will have 0.79 kids over a lifetime. That's well below 2.1. That means you know millions upon millions of South Koreans will not exist over the next 40 to 50 years. Uh, so there it is. It's, it's that existentialist worldview. I'll live for today. I will enjoy, I will eat, drink, and be merry and enjoy our paycheck today without having to worry about dealing with children. Uh, Apparently, South Korean government's very concerned about this. They've spent $200 billion attempting to boost the population, try to give, you know, a monthly allowance of 300,000, 700,000 won. That's between 230 and $540 per child, monthly allowance for parents who have babies. Okay, so that's been attempted. Well, let's wrap this up. What's the, what are the effects of the worldview? It's a loss of hope for the future, a failure to carry on a civilization, a lack of will and energy to carry on a civilization. How many of European leaders were childless? 
well, I've lost count, but most of them were childless. Right. Uh, phenomenal. Yeah, and I think you're the only one that's pointed that out. I haven't seen anyone else cite that. It's fascinating. Well, I put a, pulled it off a news story or two out there, but uh, euthanasia. I think a massive increase in the killing of the elderly is going to happen. Last week, New York Times came out with a very interesting article about the kinless. You heard of the kinless Americans. Oh, wow. What an interesting term. You don't have any kin. You're kinless. Yeah, it's kinless. Kinless, yeah. And and whole story on it, New York Times. You can go to New York Times, do a search on kinless. You find an estimated 6.6% of American adults aged 55 and older have no living spouse or biological children and that's that's from virtually zero at the turn of the 20th century so you know you're looking at a massive increase in the number of people some six million elderly have nobody to take care of them they're called kinless americans several demographic factors have fostered increased kinlessness obviously high divorce rates lower marriage rates uh they've remained childless for a you know Throughout their lives, relying on substitutes has limitations, says the article from The New York Times. About two thirds of older Americans will eventually hit a rubber meets the road moment, require help with the activities of daily living, such as bathing, dressing and using the toilet. It's interesting. My father went uh, blind this year and uh, my mother has been taking care of him almost full time for the last, I'm going to say, seven, eight months. But uh, this kind of thing will be fairly normal for a fair percentage of America, especially with the baby boomers retiring. You're looking at 80 million baby boomers retiring between 2011 and 2035. So, wow, what is going to happen? Uh, Governments are running out of other people's money. Social Security will not be there for them. So euthanasia, it's going to be euthanasia. And the underlying reasons for not having babies, as you mentioned Adam, it's just this assumption the world is not robust enough to produce the food necessary. Of course, we, we've corrected that a hundred times. You know, farming output output has just massively increased since 1929. Uh, farming output is something like 4.4 fold increase, while population increased by a factor of 2.7 since 1929. So, Malthus was wrong. Turns out the supply increased, didn't decrease. Uh, of the 1.9 billion acres in America, people live off of 133 million acres and farms grow food on 349 million acres. What's that leave you? Another 1.4 billion acres of forest and rangeland, all undeveloped and mostly unfenced. Uh, take Mexico, for example. 12% of Mexico's land is good for growing crops. Guess how much they use? 1%. Okay, so we've got margin here, guys. We got a ton of margin. And the 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 yield per acre has increased 10 to 15 fold since 1929. So, hey, we've got a long way to go. And turns out Malthus was wrong. And I think the bottom line, the reason people aren't having kids is a lack of faith and self-centeredness, Adam. Well, what did Malthus say? Malthus said that there's no way that the supply can keep up with the exponential increase in human population. It turns out. The exponential increase of the food supply has vastly surpassed the exponential increase of the world population. And that has been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, especially over the last hundred years, a period of time in which the Malthusians have pretty much uh, brainwashed the entire population of the Western world. And, you know, throw in China and South Korea and all these other developed nations over, say, this last hundred years. It's amazing how much 
deception has fallen in over the entire world during a period of time in which science has proven that uh, we can provide for an exponential increase in population. Well, you cite three underlying reasons for not having babies. The first, you just touched on assumption that this earth is not robust enough. The earth cannot produce the food. The second is lack of faith. You point to Rudyard Kipling's poem that's still quite prophetic in which he has this line, the women had no more children, the men lost reason and faith. Wow, that says it all, doesn't it? Well, it takes faith to have children. I mean, you think of these amazing women who have the faith to you know, step out and have children. It's not like the birthing and raising of children is the easiest thing to do. <laughs> Come on. You know, uh, I've got several daughters who are raising several children each, and it's, you know, it's a challenge. It's it's a major uh, faith challenge for them, and yet they're stepping out and doing it, thanks be to God. So there is this lack of faith with, with men, men and women, both. He refers to men losing reason and faith, but uh, but the women need the faith, the men need the faith to step out and have children and continue to uh, establish a future posterity. That can only happen by faith. And, of course, self-centeredness is the other issue. Bottom line is so much added convenience with abortifacients like the IUD. It conveniently kills babies, flushes them out of the womb a couple of times a year. No blood, no surgery, no extra chemicals. Just the IUD. So easy. Uh, So, you know, these technological advances that have accommodated the self-centeredness of the modern age. Phenomenal. Abortifacients, abortion, the use of uh, debt uh, to you know consume all of the capital of previous generations and put our great grandchildren into debt so that we can just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die sort of mentality. Friends, that's what's running the world today. That's the worldview that's running the world today. May I suggest a different discipleship approach, a different zeitgeist, a different worldview for your children? And that's why I'd recommend our generation's curriculum and certainly grab a copy of How the World Runs and Your Part in it as a way in which your children will be rooted and grounded in a biblical approach to work, to life, to what God has for them in their future family, future home life, and future work life. This pretty much summarizes it, How the World Runs and Your Part in It, a book about the practical things of life and economy for everybody. This book and, of course, the entire course with a workbook included available at generations.org. This is Kevin Swanson and Adam McManus inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation. 